Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Ian Fisher, and I am sitting in as the host of the show today. We're looking back at early July today when we had a couple of big items in the news that were centered on SCOTUS decisions, in particular with affirmative action in college admission, and also with federal loan repayment. So a little bit of a an update on where things are and what families should be thinking about with respect to those two outcomes. We want to start with the finance piece. And in order to do that, we're going to bring in Michelle Clifton, who has been the star of our team, of our finance team over the last couple of months in terms of bringing all this information together and gathering news and making sense of basically a landscape that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Michelle, thank you for doing that. And thank you for being here today. What an intro. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Seriously, like this stuff is super complicated. And I I hope you can just give us a little bit of an update on how we got here, right? So there was a potential loan debt forgiveness plan uh, from the Biden administration. My understanding is that's off now. What's going on? Where are we? Yeah, yeah. So I'll back up a little bit. So back in... It feels like forever ago, August of 2022. I remember that day vividly when they, President Biden announced the one-time debt relief for up to $10,000 for some borrowers, $20,000 for Pell Grant recipients for federal student loans. There was so much excitement over that. And then I can't even remember how long later, there were a variety of different uh, lawsuits in, in regards to that. And it ended up going to, a few of them go, went to the Supreme Court. Now we waited and waited, waited for the Supreme Court decision, and it finally came out on the last day of the session, of course, on June 30th, that yeah. morning. Mm-hmm. I will remember that morning vividly as well. So they ended up blocking the debt relief. Mm-hmm. And that afternoon, um, President Biden announced that they were going to try again through, instead of through the HEROES Act, they were going to do it, try to do it through the Higher Education Act, which has a whole other process in itself. And they have to go to through negotiated rulemaking and it takes a long, long time. Like just for an example, he also announced the new income-driven plan that afternoon, which is called the SAVE plan, which I'm sure we'll end up talking about as well. But uh, that process started in the fall of 2021. And then that, that went through negotiated rulemaking and then that was finally announced. The the uh, proposal was announced this past January, and then that was finally announced on June 30th. So the this process takes a while. So we really don't know at this point. And even if it does go through successfully, it may have its own legal challenges. So my, you know, kind of advice to borrowers is to not hold your breath for it. But mm-hmm. also, you know, if it if it does come through, that would be wonderful. I think holding your breath. Uh, in this economy, in this world, is probably just a bad idea. Please yeah. breathe deeply all the time, whether yes. it's related to student <laughs> loans or or anything else. Um, now, because of the legal challenge, because of the SCOTUS decision, for many borrowers, loan repayment is starting. starting yeah. And actually, funny enough, it's not starting because of that, um, which I forgot to mention. So the debt ceiling bill actually prohibited the extension of the loan pause. So I would imagine that since they're 
trying to do this through the Higher Education Act, they may have tried to extend the loan pause again, but they can't because gotcha. of the debt ceiling bill. So because of that, um, interest has already started to accrue. So the loan pause officially, after three and a half years, the loan pause officially ended on September 1st. So interest has started started to accrue on September 1st. And re- um, monthly payments are resuming in October. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean October 1st. Some I actually just talked to someone yesterday who had an October 1st deadline. It's the first one I've had. Most people are all over the place in October. And yeah. some some borrowers haven't even seen their due date yet because the servicers aren't completely up to date in getting that information populated on the websites. So um, some people are panicking a little bit, but I would tell them to to take a step back and just wait because the servicers do have to bill them 21 days prior to the deadline. So it will be coming if it hasn't already. But if you haven't seen it uh, and you get it, you do have 21 days between when you receive that notice and when you actually need to make a payment. Exactly. Yep. Okay. I, this might be outside of your scope of expertise. I'm going to try it anyway. There's some <laughs> mutterings about a potential shutdown and some budget um, negotiations. Will that in any way affect uh, the return to repayment given that part of the conflict is around that debt yeah. ceiling deal? I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to assume anything on that. I'm not okay. sure. The yeah. show comes out in a week, so let's not say anything. <laughs> Maybe by then the question will be moot. Uh, Whatever I say will be the opposite anyway. So let's, yeah, let's stick in the area that we know, which is uh, college finance and college admission. Um, so let's say we've got a borrower who's starting to look at the stakes and and understanding that repayment is starting and they're, they're looking at those interest rates as well. Uh, what about changing a repayment plan? Is that something that folks might want to consider? And what are the reasons to consider that? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's actually something that I find borrowers don't they often don't know that they can change their repayment plan at any time. And in most most cases, you can change it at any time. So if, say, say you have someone who has never been in repayment, whether you, they were a 2020 graduate or mm-hmm. a more recent graduate, mm-hmm. you know, past three years of, of recent graduates have not been in repayment yet. If you're in that circumstance, the, um, the servicer is going to automatically put you into the standard 10-year repayment plan, but that's not the only option. There's a graduated plan that's also over 10 years that starts out a little bit lower, increases mm-hmm. every two years. If you have 30000 or more in debt um, through federal loans, you can use the extended repayment plan up to 25 years or the graduated extended up to 25 years, which similarly starts out lower, increases every two years. So those are a couple of the more um, kind of standard options. And then there's also a variety of income-driven repayment plans, which uh, most notably the SAVE plan that was recently announced because that one is a little more generous than the prior plans as far as giving borrowers a lower monthly payment. So they, um, the, the ones I just talked about before, in order to choose one of those, you would just go to your servicer's website and select one of those plans. But if you're wanting to use an income-driven repayment plan, the best way to start that process is to go directly to studentaid.gov slash IDR. And it's going to take you through an application that actually doesn't take too long. I, um, I've helped many people do it in recent weeks, and um, it's very quick. It Basically, they've changed it where before you had to use the 
the old IRS data retrieval tool, like on the FAFSA mm -hmm. to pull over mm -hmm. your tax information. Now it's just a basic consent where you, it's a little kind of, kind of a little scarier where you're basically just say, I consent to have the Department of Education access my IRS information. And you don't have to do it that way if you're not comfortable with that, but you'd have to follow up with documentation if that was the case. But if you provide consent, they will get your most recent adjusted gross income. They will calculate the different plans for you right there and tell you what your monthly payments are based on your family size and your income. Oh. Oh. And But then the problem is after this point, yeah, it's it's taking and we're finding some servicers are taking longer than other, others from when this process gets submitted to when that payment gets updated on the servicers website can uh, be and they say it right on the application. It can take up to four weeks. Um, we've had a couple of people that have been waiting for like six weeks. So the problem is the payment amount isn't updated on the servicer site, so they can't make the payment that they're expecting to pay. Um, but they did. I noticed that they did add an option at the end of the application where you can um, opt, because we're getting so close to the first um, monthly payment for October, you can opt to do a one month forbearance and they kind of force you into it. I don't really love the way they do it, but they force you into a one month forbearance where you select an amount to pay at least $5 is the minimum okay. while basically give them time to process your application so that you're not um, waiting. And if you decline the forbearance, you have to do that with your servicer and then they'll have you pay the standard monthly payment for that month and then they'll update it for the next month. Okay. That's a lot. There's a yeah. lot going on in there. What was that <laughs> website that you said for the IDR that folks can Studentaid.gov slash IDR. Studentaid.gov slash IDR. And the reason to look into an IDR is because you might potentially have lower monthly payments based on the income that you're earning. That's, yeah, that's the goal. An income-driven plan is, but it, it doesn't calculate that way for everybody. If you have a sure. small amount of loans and a decent salary, you're income-driven plan, even in the save plan, could calculate much higher than the standard plan, for example. Um, and some people actually choose to do that to get out of debt quicker. But um, right. overall, the the reason behind the income-driven plans is to bring that payment to a more manageable, manageable amount. And instead of having the calculation based on the total debt, the repayment term in the, in the interest rate, it's based completely on the family size and your income. Hmm. So that's what's calculating it. Gotcha. And and when we think about these longer terms versus shorter terms, I would imagine it's like any kind of payment where for a longer term, you are paying more in interest, but your monthly payments are lower. Whereas a shorter term, your monthly payments are higher, but there's less interest over time. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. And um, so we kind of work through in a lot of our our guidance, we're working through both scenarios where it's like, okay, do you want to pay the smallest amount for 20 or 25 years. And overall, we'll look at what you could potentially pay in that circumstance. And maybe you will get some forgiveness in that, or or maybe you work for a not-for-profit employer and can get forgiveness after 10 years. Yeah. Um, that's a more ideal situation. Or can you manage the standard payments? Can you actually pay even extra and get out of debt before 10 years and save on interest? Yeah. So it's 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 it, it all varies depending on what the goal of the borrower is. Very much personalized circumstances. And totally. you know, I would imagine, you know, you and other folks on our finance team are fielding questions just constantly from from families and they're all, I would imagine, fairly similar, but also quite different depending on circumstance. What are the things that that people are are tending to ask most commonly? What are the questions that are popping up the most frequently in these conversations? Yeah, I feel like a lot of times when we talk loans, it can vary so much, but 
lately there's been some common themes for sure. A lot of it is I heard about the save plan because the Department of Education has been sending weekly emails about the save plan because they want to promote this as you know, the win where they, you know, couldn't get the debt relief, but they can offer this lower monthly payment. Um, So they've been promoting the heck out of the save plan, which has been, um, you know, unfortunate in some circumstances, because most people who were using an income driven plan in the past didn't have to recertify now. Mm -hmm. uh, But the the notifications kind of make it look like that. So we've had people who have recertified where their payments were actually lower before, and because they income had was much lower three years ago, that type of thing. So there's some nuances there that we're able to to help borrowers think through. But the common themes are really kind of what I stated before. Do you want to pay the lowest amount for a long time or even just temporarily just because, you know, the cost of living is so expensive right now. And most people have not been thinking about their student loans for the past three and a half years. So it's a shock um, for a lot of people to have to go back into into repayment or repayment for the first time ever. So some of it is, you know, maybe I should use a low payment for this first year and then, you know, thinking of a new strategy going forward. Or I've also had others in the complete opposite where student loans are very stressful to a lot of people and they want to get rid of it as soon as possible. So I was talking to someone just the other day where they were like, I think I can pay like $2,000 a month. And we figured it out and we're like, okay, you could pay this off in two years. And overall, he was only going to pay like $1,000 in interest on the loans. So that was kind of one of the best case scenarios I've ever had. (laughs) But still sounds painful to me, right? $2,000 a month, like you're getting over (laughs) it quickly. But man, that's that's a lot. Yeah, that's um, a, so, a shock you know, to the budget for a bit. That's right. Think about how that's going to affect you. Maybe you're having PB and J um, for every meal <laughs> for for a couple of years. But but it could be worth it coming out on the other side. Yeah. You've mentioned the save plan a couple of times, and I'm not a college finance nerd, so this is something that's a little bit more new to me. It might be new to our sure. listeners. So who does this save plan best fit? Um, who are the folks that should be thinking about that? I, I think it's an important uh, important initiative. Yeah, so I'll guess I'll try to quickly say explain how it works. So basically sure. with the save plan, they take an amount of income that is not counted towards the calculation. So it's 225% over the poverty guideline in your state based on your family size. Okay. So that alone for someone that makes slightly under so a single person that doesn't have any dependents, if they earn less than thirty-four little under thirty-four thousand, that calculates at a zero monthly payment just based on that portion of the calculation alone. Okay. And if you make more than that, it's um so yeah, if you make more than that, what they do is they take the difference between your income and that, and they take ten percent of the uh, what they're called, what they call a discretionary income. Okay. And then that 10% is a certain amount. And then that's divided by 12 for the monthly payments for that okay. year. Okay. So, um, in, you know, in general, it, we used to always say that income driven plans would work most, um, only if your income was less than your overall debt. And because of the changes in the save plan, that's not really a good rule of thumb anymore. You can earn quite a bit more than your annual, than your total loan debt and, and still benefit from this, especially if you have um, multiple dependents. But, um, you know, it, in general, it's really for someone that um, is looking to potentially reduce their payment, whether it's permanently and they want to take advantage of the 20 or 25 years um, forgiveness that that brings after that point, or if it's a temporary um, reduction in payment where, while you figure things out. 
And we had a, a fairly full discussion about the save plan um, about a month ago. Uh, Sally was the host that aired oh, on right. August 31st. And uh, Jennifer Wilcox was on talking about that. So if you want to learn more about the details of that plan, you can go into our archives and and pull out that that episode. Um, all right. We've got about 30 seconds. Big question, Michelle. <laughs> What's the best way to get out of student loan debt quickly? 30 seconds. Yeah. Stay on the stay on the standard plan and pay extra towards principal. For example, if you have $30,000 in debt, a $300 roughly monthly payment, if you pay double that, you'll be out of debt in under five years. Okay. So, and you would save more than half of the interest. So just pay more example. faster, yeah. pay more. Yeah. Great. Um, it's complicated, Michelle. I don't even know how you all keep this straight um, in your heads, but it's remarkable. <laughs> And uh, really delighted to have you as a part of our team. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about that other big SCOTUS decision in higher education, uh, the um, decision on race-conscious admissions. Don't go away. We'll be right back. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. <laughs> At Voice America TRN. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Are you ready for a broad look at everything to do with the world of sports? If so, tune in to the Mike Abadir Show. It's a unique perspective to the connections between sports and business. Host Mike Abadir has negotiated numerous deals in the NFL. Along with co-host Gino Bacola, Mike will bring his expertise, discussion, and some terrific guests to the airwaves. Listen live for the Mike Abadir Show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. We've got a lot to talk about in this segment. I don't know if we have enough time, uh, but we're going to do our our very best to stay on point uh, and, and not over over discuss. Uh, right. If you're watching us on video, you'll already have noticed that Kira Tyler is back to talk about the SCOTUS decision. Um, I want to point, point folks to our archives because you had a great conversation, Kira, with Sally when this um, 
when this decision initially came out back in early July. Um, And I think if you have not listened to that episode, it was a great one. And it's worth going back and hearing a little bit uh, from what Kira and Sally had to share. So I recommend recommend doing that. Thank you you for your perspective. Um, So just to update folks, if you've been living under a rock somewhere, uh, SCOTUS decided that they wanted to um, basically strike down affirmative action and Mm -hmm. eliminate race conscious admissions. And now Mm -hmm. we live in a world of race neutral admissions. Yeah. Kira, I think that there are like different groups of folks who are affected by this. There are individual applicants, there are colleges, there are admission officers. I wanted yeah. to start with some data I found from Inside Higher Ed that I thought was interesting. And I'm just going to read this quote from the article. More yeah. than half of admissions officers said they think the affirmative action decision will resort, result in fewer minority students being admitted to competitive mm-hmm. institutions. At the same time, three quarters believe their own institution will maintain its current level of diversity despite the Supreme Court's decision. I thought this was very dissonant for me. It was sort of like, well, our school is going to be good, but I think in general, we're going to have less diversity. How do you unpack that? How do you think about that perspective? Sure. So if I think about the kind of people who do admission work, like you and I have in the past, and we're still connected to that work, we have a lot of deep respect for those folks that are doing it currently, Mm -hmm. that um, we are optimistic right? Like we were sort of mission driven, I think. And so what we see is that the past has told us that when states have gotten rid of um, affirmative action or um, the Supreme Court actually used race-based as opposed to race conscious, which I think is interesting. Um, so when, when that has been um, abolished, that we see that there are fewer applicants, right? And there are obviously fewer people who are admitted. But I, I think the what you see from their perspective is that they're a hopeful group and mm-hmm. they believe that they can come up with some creative solutions and their institutions will support them in doing so and they will be able to overcome that. I think that's what's going on. There was, in the wake of the initial decision, I imagine you saw this across your social media, I saw it all over LinkedIn, admissions yeah. officers saying, we will do everything we can to continue to preserve diversity. Sure. I found it to be very striking and interesting in contrast to data around the American public who kind of support the decision on the whole. And there is some, you know, I want to kind of explain like, what does race conscious admissions mean? Not race-based, right? And you're right, right. to call out that distinction. Mm-hmm. What do you think accounts for that discrepancy? I mean, this is one of those scenarios where folks say, you know, I'm not really in favor of affirmative action, but the people who are doing the work, who are in the profession, see it as an essential part of maintaining mm-hmm. diversity at institutions. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that in some ways, this is like part of a, a, a much bigger conversation around the foundation of things that we have known, right, Dobbs, that we have known that have suddenly people have decided we don't wanna do that anymore for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that the American public believes to some extent, believes the hype. We're done. We had a black president. Here we are. We're this. We're that. And they don't fully understand a the policy, which was as a factor, not yeah. the reason. Right. Um. And I think people believe we've moved on. There are other things to talk about. Um. They're right. There are a lot of other things to talk about, for better or for worse. But we have not moved on. Um, but it's a little bit of a complex thing um, to hold in your head. And I don't know that everybody's up for that, interested in it, that it fits their values. Yeah. yeah. 
the work of admitting a diverse class is really challenging. Um, yes. It was challenging before. It will be yes. even more challenging now. Yes. One of the things that's really interesting about admission is the inherent selfishness of it, right? Which is like, I want diversity at the institution I want to go to, but mm-hmm. I also want to be admitted to that institution, right? So mm-hmm. I need my advantage to be maximized, but I also want to see certain kinds of experiences waiting for me when mm-hmm. I get there. Mm-hmm. And that to me is a little bit of that contrast where folks are like, I don't think I like affirmative action because it might affect my situation or my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And admission officers are looking at it from the perspective of the institution and the overall wellness of the institution and understanding how important this piece is. Have you gotten any questions from individuals? Have you seen the impact on an individual level in the last three months of folks who are curious how this will affect them? Totally. Concerned at how this will affect them? Like what has been the nature of just your kid on the streets um, understanding of this process? Yeah, sure. I've gotten a lot of questions about this and, and kids of all stripes, right? Black kids, white kids, Asian kids, Latino kids, like they're curious. I think there's a little bit of hesitancy to ask the question because yeah. I think people don't want you to think that if they ask the question that they feel a certain kind of way about it. I'd rather people ask the question and we can talk about it sure. than not ask the question. But I do think there's a lot of curiosity about it. Um, I will also say though, Ian, that I have been struck by the amount of kids who kind of also don't know anything about it. And I... Sure. I'm blown away by that. I'm, I mean, if I put myself back in my high school self, I was super politically engaged. Also, this is, I have never revealed this publicly. I wrote my college essay about affirmative action crumbling in California. Um, I think it was Prop 209, right? When I applied to college. So like, I am acutely aware. I have been thinking about this for a really long time. But um, yes, kids are really curious. And the underpinning question is always like, well, how is this going to affect me? Will I be able to get into this school now? I have a better shot or like, I don't know, what should I say in the application? It's And these are great questions. And I get why people are concerned and curious. Yeah. And I, I think it makes sense. And, and I do yeah. think that how does this affect me is the right question to ask, especially in the context of the conversations that you and I have. We talk to a family, we're talking to them about a college admission. Mm -hmm. It is important for them to be able to put their best foot forward. Yes. I also think that, you know, one of the things that we can't necessarily answer is how does this affect the institutions? What is the process um, and the pace at which things will change at those institutions if they change at all? You know, what, what are we, we still have not had a round of admission in right. this new landscape. And so it's very hard to know what things are going to look like when yeah. admission statistics are released in the spring. Do you and hear I, any? Yeah, please. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that I think that for me has been one of the most challenging parts of this is that I'm comfortable like with, with some of the things that I don't know, but truly this is like a big question mark and I'm just not sure. My cynical side relies on the data that we've seen before, which is that, oh my gosh, it's all falling down. But then my reasonable self says, yeah, but Kira, it's for not as many schools as people probably think it is. It doesn't really impact, right? And And so I'm sort of like of the... I love December for a lot of reasons, but because that's like our first slice of data, right? It's it's good. And then obviously what falls out, what drips out until April 1. So I think this is going to be 
interesting, but I don't really think we're going to really get a good feel for it until next year's cycle. I think you're right. And and that's one of the things just about education in general is that whenever you introduce a stimulus, whether it's in a classroom, yes. whether it's an admissions process, you have right. to wait to see what the impact of that thing is going to be. Um, and the frustrating thing about this is that you could look at California and see all of the effects that this had there when they removed race from their admission process and the deep work that they have had to do in order to get back to a level of diversity that they had been yeah. in before. Um, so there, there is evidence out there. UC is its own system, but but I think it's it's a good cross section of America and, and perhaps a helpful case study for us to look yeah. at. And deep work, like deep knowledge, deep dive, d- like real experts, and also very deep pockets, right? Deep so pockets. It, this yeah. is this yeah. is a very big, big undertaking. I will say. Now, this is a small anecdotal sample, but of some of the students that I work with, I've been surprised that like some of the same schools, and these are kids that go to very well-resourced high schools, um, which is its own four-hour conversation of a well-resourced high school, but they still have the same players coming to their schools. And I'm sort of like, but guys, I thought we were going to do something different maybe around recruitment. I thought we were going to be thinking about, you know, zip codes and like, you know, schools that don't have physics, right? Schools that don't have, like, let's, and I haven't really, again, small sample, but I've been sort of surprised that requires planning. And I sort of thought people were thinking about that and able to make some of those changes around recruitment. Um, Cause I think that is one big way we get our way out of this move yeah. forward. Um, and so that I think has been to me surprising. They could be working with CBOs. I don't know every admission officer's schedule, but I do know that they're still making time for some of those massive heavy hitting schools. Yeah, I you're right. And, you know, I think you've said like nine things that I want to go in nine different directions right now. I do want to, I do want to <laughs> applaud Caltech. There've been some really great articles that have come out about the work that yes. Caltech has been doing to continue to um, admit a diverse class and to understand context really, really well. So they've done yes. some awesome stuff and you can find great articles about the work that they've been doing. Right. Um, there has been, I wouldn't say a backlash, Kira, but there has been some response around, okay, well, affirmative action is gone. What about legacy? What about the other ways in which the admission process advantages other groups? Um, Can colleges make changes in this way? And while you've seen that in op-eds and you've seen some schools that have eliminated legacy, Virginia Tech comes to mind as an example of a school that said we're getting rid of this. Amherst got rid of it. Wesleyan. Mm -hmm. Wesleyan got rid of it. most schools are kind of silent on it. A lot of institutions themselves are not saying, okay, we're going to level the playing field for all. They're leveling the playing field according to what they've been legally required to do. And right. whether that's leveling at all, we can debate, right? And I don't think we'll debate it much, but um, what, what what's going on there? And and what what has been your perception of like the, this conversation around legacy and this conversation about advantage uh, showing mm-hmm. up in other ways too? Yeah. Because if I put my, if I put my fundraising hat on and I worked in development, um, not for long, cause I didn't love it. Um, <laughs> if I put that hat back on the reason why places that are really pushing this idea correctly about, you know, affirmative action, race conscious admissions, building a diverse class, all of those things wanting to still commit to those ideals that when you poke away and you say to your alums, 
I don't think we got, I don't think we're going to do it anymore. That, that then threatens fundraising dollars that threatens alumni engagement. Um, it could potentially threaten apps, right? So I think it really chips away at potentially endowed scholarships, athletics, um, study abroad programs that are, uh, beautifully funded by a lot of alums. Like, I think that's why it it then gets to be money. Also, the complicated part is that for some of these schools that offer robust financial aid and scholarship opportunities that are not loan based or just really generous, it happens because of um, a hefty donor class. Yeah, significant endowment and continuing to fill that endowment. Yes. Um, and so I have not been surprised that some of the bigger names have not taken action on legacy conversation because that's a big institutional priority for them. Yep. And I think, you know, if we're waiting to see like that fairness come on on the part of them that they're going to take the initiative, I think we should not hold our breath. Okay. Um, schools have made some changes within admissions offices, and I think you're, you're seeing this at different levels of selectivity, but with respect to the essay question. Mm -hmm. And a lot of schools have introduced a version of um, an identity essay question, partly because in the majority opinion, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said something about colleges being able to ask students about their lived experiences and how they might intersect with race and how that has in impacted the life that they've led. Sure. So some schools have taken him literally, in fact, Sarah Lawrence took him literally. Yes. They quoted him I and they that. said, respond to this. How has your life been impacted in, yeah. in some ways based on your race? Yeah. But other schools and have it's been not optional, right? It's, it's not, optional. not a, that's not optional, right? It's made These are not optional essays. I no, love that this. one's not. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this identity essay is now something that students of color are encountering. And I think probably they've had many conversations about this over their lifetimes. It's also sure. something that students who have never had to pause and think about their identity are now having to do, which has been interesting. Um, yes. As you've been working with students and talking about these essays, which as you point out, are required to apply to yeah. these schools. What, what's been going on with students? How have they been reacting and responding to this? I think that for particular pockets of students, it's very challenging. Um, I will say I went to Guiding the Way to Inclusion. It's a conference that is put on by NACAC, which is the professional organization of admission counselors um, and school counselors. And there was this whole like workshop or keynote on, on identity. And one of the really interesting things that I never realized, because I am very clear about my own identity, is that white people by and large do not understand their own identity. They are uncomfortable identifying themselves. And so I think I have definitely seen that bubble up a little bit that with some of my white students, it takes us a little bit longer to get there because they're not sure. They sort of feel like, well, I don't know what my identity is. I think in all truth, right? Which isn't true. Everybody has an identity. 100%. But so I love that these questions are being asked. I think they're really important. I think it will be a great way for, to get a better uh, lens on who the class is, how they're feeling, how they can um, communicate. And so I love that these questions are being asked. They're hard, but they're worth it. They are, they are hard. They're worth it. Yeah. As a white person, I've yes. had workshops like these where we talk about inclusion. And initially when they ask questions like, what is your identity? I don't lead with white. I don't typically lead with male, right? Yes. I lead with interests. I lead with, because I can, because exactly. in that context, it's very easy for me to ignore 
these aspects of my identity. Right. Whereas people of color, often they have other, their race can be the most salient piece of their identity in certain contexts that they might feel very strongly. Yeah. And so I think it's been hard for white students to say, where do I start with this question? How do I think about it? Am I answering this in the right kind of way? And I do appreciate that folks are having to have that reflective engagement because it gets easier over time. If you continue to ask those questions of yourself, it does. You start to, I, you know, it, it gets easier and you start to understand why it's important. It does. And listen, I always identify because I think that that's like, it's obvious about me. Guess what, Ian? It's also obvious about you. You are a white man. So this idea that like, we're like, well, I'm 6'2 and I have glasses and dark hair. It's like, that's not telling me anything. I don't know what that means. So I think that to create more fluency around it, I love that this question is being asked. What I told one of my, this is when my daughter was really young, one of her teachers, I said, look, if, if you're not talking about like, if my kid has to talk about race, like don't admonish her for like talking about it with her little, you know, third grade friends. Like we're all going to talk about who aren't, who aren't people of color. Like we're all going to talk about it. And I love that this question is a way to sort of kick that off. That's right. And it's, it has been something that we, not every school has introduced this. Um, I would say fewer than I expected. I have, Me too. it's been out there, but not as many as I thought. Same. What do you think happened? I think admission offices are slow to change. Although they had plenty of warning that this was coming. Um, I would have liked them to be prepared uh, to ask these questions. I think admission officers also engage in a lot of groupthink. And so there's some elements of like, what are other people going to do here before we change something this year? So I imagine that there might be more who try something next year um, and in the years to come. I don't know. It's a little disappointing. Like, I I feel like there there was space to do more. Same. It really, I think it's a question that puts your values front and center. So maybe people weren't ready for that, right? But I I like to think that they were. I don't know. You hope that they would be. In any case, (laughs) we got to end it here. I know we've got so much more to talk about, Kira, but uh, we're going to talk. We got another segment to do. So um, let's come on back. We'll get you back here when we start to see those first cross sections of data come through. And as we learn a little bit more about this decision and how it's impacting all students, right? So this is not just impacting students of color. It's also impacting white students who have to write new essays now. Yes. So this is an everybody system. issue. It's an everybody issue. Absolutely. Uh, great. Always a pleasure, Kira. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ian. Same. Bye. 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 Folks, we will be right back with a little bit more from Getting In. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. You will never be as young as you are today. We're all getting older, no matter what age we are. 
Each passing year brings a new set of challenges, fears, beauty, and joy. Tune in to The Old Show with 62-year-old host Jody Harrison-Bauer and her 30-year-old daughter Lexi as they talk all things aging to help you march fearlessly into your next chapter. Old, Wednesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. In this final segment, I'm joined by Aisha Wong, who is on the literal other end of the country from me, the opposite corner. Aisha from Florida, how's it going? It's going pretty good. Thanks for having me, Ian. Glad to have you here. We are going to talk about your alma mater and your former employer, the University of Florida in Gainesville. Um, First of all, what comes to mind when you think of the University of Florida? Like, what is the sort of strongest characteristic that um, that comes through for you? Yeah, for me, I think of uh, like spirit. (laughs) So immediately I'm thinking of like an overall like enthusiasm and spirit and energy that comes through with the campus. I think, you know, with their athletic teams and with, uh, this sense of community that you get as being a gator, Mm -hmm. um, that's all very much tied into this, like intense passion for the university. And you can feel that energy when you're on campus too. And, and that was my experience as a student and my experience as an employee there as a staff member, um, and still being in Gainesville, still my experience in some ways. Um, so yeah, definitely energy and spirit for sure. That's great. When I hear University of Florida, I can see the colors blue and orange in my head. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it comes through so strongly. And so it it totally makes sense that spirit would be the thing that you would lead with. You were a student, then you moved over to the admission office. How do you look for spirit in an application to University of Florida? Is that something you're looking for? Um, What are the other kind of salient factors that really are important uh, as a part of application review? Yeah, definitely. I think spirit is hard to capture in an application. I mean, students, you know, can show their enthusiasm for institutions, I feel like in a multitude of ways. But the questioning, I think, in the UF application, as far as like, essay writing and things like that, aren't necessarily designed specifically to capture spirit. So Mm -hmm. I think a student does have to be really thoughtful and intentional about how they display themselves in their application for UF. I think what it comes down to is kind of, uh, displaying that personality through their their personal voice in mm-hmm. their writing, having enthusiasm about the things that they're involved in in their life in the here and now. Um, are you passionate about this activity that you are pursuing? Are you intensely involving yourself in exploring your academic interests? Like how is that passion, that intensity reading 
through the way that you live your life now. Um, and so I think that's kind of where we can pick up on how they might bring that into the campus environment um, and add to that overall spirit that, you know, they have on the University of Florida campus. You think about Florida and you think about, you know, Saturday ESPN football game and you kind of scan this crowd and everybody's doing, you know, the gator chomp, right? It's this yeah. sea of faces. There are so many people there. There are also tens of thousands of applications that come through UF every year. And you can probably tell me about how many in total. Um, how do you stand out in a crowd, a literal crowd, um, with the materials that are provided for you, especially at a big university like Florida with such a deep applicant pool? Yeah, yeah, it is tough. Um, every now and then you you find, I think, when I was reading applications, I would find like this spark um in an applicant that just made me stop in my tracks and be like wow i want to save this i want to capture this i want to bottle it um in some way um and often that's a student that you know is showcasing a, a great sense of self right like an understanding of of who they are and that somehow is coming through in their writing um and again that intensity i think plays into it as well like they're not just aware of who they are, but they're actively seeking ways to grow that and explore that. Um, and so that's coming through, you know, oftentimes in their writing in the essays, um, you know, they're, we're getting the main common app essay, they're getting the uh, a supplemental essay about their most meaningful activity. And so you're able to see some of that, that passion and exploration come through. Um, but I think also there are certain things that you can specifically look for when you're thinking about this very large campus with this great set of opportunities, like a wealth of opportunities. And you know that a student is going to need to be a self-starter. You know that they're you're, they're going to have to have a certain degree of independence um, and maturity to navigate such a vast uh, campus yeah. and so, so many different opportunities. So you look for those sorts of things as well. Like that was something that was important to me when I was reading was, you know, am I seeing someone that I believe will ask for help when they need help, will seek out, actively seek out the opportunities versus waiting on those things to kind of present themselves to the student. Um, so taking initiative, you know, being a self-starter, those qualities I think are especially important to be, you know, showcased in this application. Probably also characteristics that other public universities of similar size are looking for um, because they are large, because you need to go find those opportunities. You talked about, yeah. you know, students that are asking for help. That was something that at Reed, when we were looking at applications, was also very important to us. But we weren't looking for that same sense of going out and advocating for yourself and finding those opportunities. Because in many ways at a small school, those find you. They are right. opportunities that, you know, your professor will ask you if you missed class because there are only mm -hmm. 15 people in the class and, and that's not going to yeah. happen in a larger university. So Absolutely. there are very important kind of distinctions in terms of the student characteristics that will come through that make you a fit for a university like Florida. Even though it feels like it's big, they're still looking for for match. Yep. Um, now, Aisha, you have a gift of being both efficient and thorough simultaneously. Um, how much time did you spend per application? I imagine you had many that you had to get through and folks might think there's no way that she could possibly have read all the stuff that she read, but I know that you can, cause I know you, but, but what did the, what did the pragmatics look like at UF? Yeah. Yeah. You do have fairly limited time. I mean, I would say probably 
five to seven minutes max on an application. Um, the the review is split up into multiple phases and parts. So that's just mm-hmm. generally for like the writing and the resume and those like sort of like non-academic um, pieces specifically. And then we would do other additional reviews. So there's like layers to this um, that I think are helpful in kind of breaking up the work. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a relatively quick review. You learn to be a fast reader. <laughs> um, that's one skill you pick up, I think, as an admissions counselor who reads applications. Um, you learn how to zero in on the things that are going to be meaningful or important in your decision making. Um, so that's happening as well. But yeah, the, the time is definitely limited. So students should be thoughtful about, you know, how they organize their information, how they display that within the application. Yeah. Um, to ensure that, you know, admissions counselors are picking up on what they want them to pick up very quickly. And simplify. You don't want your admission counselor to have to work to figure out what you're trying to yeah. say. You don't want them kind of pouring over very complex sentences. Simplify, right? Absolutely. Sure your message is clear. Yeah. And we're not going to stop and Google what something is. We're not going to try to figure out what an acronym means mm-hmm. or what this obscure uh, engineering concept is um, that you're talking about in your essay. So yes. Um, simplifying is key. Definitely. Now you said that there's not a lot of time in Florida Mm -hmm. to apply to University of Florida. There's actually not a lot of time. I think it's got the earliest regular decision deadline of any school that I've seen, um, November 1st, right? You have to apply by the first. What's the deal with that? That's so early. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, it's early for a reason. I mean, we're getting decisions out or you say we're but uh we are but um uf is getting decisions out by um mid-february typically Mm -hmm. mid to late february and so there's this window of time to get all of this review done and because the review is designed to be holistic and you want to be able to kind of in some ways have some time to understand who this person is and 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 look at them thoroughly um you have to have an earlier deadline if you're dealing with 50 60,000 applications yeah. coming in so it's simply volume staffing trying to make sure that you know they have time to kind of look at things thoroughly as they go through the process um so yeah it's an early deadline so we just have the time to <laughs> get the work done Gotta essentially do yeah so if UF is on your list or you think UF is on your list, it is probably the first application that you want to complete because even early action deadlines that are November 1st, you have that fallback of the regular decision if you can't make that deadline. But UF, it's November 1. If you don't make it, you don't make it and you're not going to be applying. Absolutely. Um, there's yeah. also a couple of other unique quirks to UF. Um, they have continued to require testing. They required it even through the pandemic. Um, and then they also require the SRAR, SRAR, the S-R-A-R, the self-reported academic record. For yeah. those of us who are unfamiliar with those, um, let's start with testing. Why does Florida require testing? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a complicated question with a complicated answer. Um, but I mean, they they never stopped requiring testing all through the pandemic. They maintained requiring testing. Um, and I think part of that was due to the fact that uh, we have the Florida Bright Future Scholarship here in Florida. And one of the uh, things that you need to meet in order to qualify for that scholarship is a certain test score. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, they didn't want to let go of that 
requirement, that data point in their consideration of students for scholarships. Um, and so, you know, universities had to essentially continue to require it to encourage students to take those tests yeah. and submit those tests for that scholarship um, consideration. So I think that definitely played into some of that decision making around keeping test scores as a requirement. Yeah. Um, and beyond that, it's hard for me to say what the logic is. <laughs> yeah, don't. Yeah, I don't need you to pontificate on that. And then <laughs> the star, the star, what's going on there? You've got yes. only 30 seconds to explain this very complex form. Yes. Um, yeah, you're asking students to go ahead and report their record in the same way as it appears on their transcript. And this is also based in efficiency as well. Um, previously, you know, they were collecting uh, actual transcripts and we were hand recalculating those oh. GPAs um, oh. because all of the transcripts formats were were different. Um, there was no standard. Um, and so this helped increase the efficiency when you're, again, seeing such a large increase in applications year over year um, and allowing, you know, more focus on the actual review and less on processing. Awesome. Aisha, how long have you yeah. been with College Coach? Uh, two years. Two years now. Well, not two years. Oh, a year and a half. A year and a half. Specific. Folks, Aisha <laughs> is awesome. She's awesome. So we look forward to having you more on the radio show and um, everywhere else that you can share your expertise with folks. Really, really Absolutely. a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Ian. Glad to have you. All right. Next week, we will be back. We'll be talking about the supplemental essay. What is it? Uh, we'll also do a deep dive on the activity list, which is a really important part of the application that is often overlooked. And you might be wondering, why can't I fill out the FAFSA? We'll talk a little bit about the FAFSA changes and why it's delaying the opportunity to apply for financial aid. In the meantime, we hope that you have a wonderful start to October. Take care of each other and we'll see you all through the fall. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.